1: At what
0: point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined by my friend and colleague, Ross Ramsey. Ross will be known to most listeners here, I, I suspect, um, He's co-founder of the Texas Tribune, where he served as a leader of the organization for 13 years after uh, an illustrious and interesting career in journalism with a couple of little breaks or one little break, I guess, uh, during the previous period. He left the Tribune in May of 2022. I was looking that up thinking, oh, it's been about a year, right? But it's, been it's almost really two. closer to two. Right? Um, you know, near as I can tell, has been doing a mixture of consulting speaking and hanging out since then i you know you promised everybody at the time though i went back and looked at the evans piece which was very nice when you announced the you were re- right, retiring
1: evans dearly departed piece right and and you at the
0: time going well you know i'm retiring but I'm not, you know i don't know if that's really what i'm doing and i think that seems so when I when I say consulting, speaking, and hanging out, welcome back. And is that a fair enough
1: description? Yeah, that works. That works. Thanks for having me here.
0: <laughs> uh, it's great to have you back. So, you know, let's dive in. You and I were talking recently about the perspective from Texas and the politics of Trump's presumed locking in of the nomination and, and you know, how I guess Trump's standing among Texas Republicans has evolved. And, you know, I've I, you know, we were talking, I think it's interesting to unpack that a little bit. When we were talking recently, you used, uh, speaking of departing, but not departed, Patrick Svitek's look at this subject in the Texas Tribune, and that was published earlier this week. I think it was posted on February 6th for people who want to take a look. It's a, it's a good starting point, and that piece is, that, and the, the headline does kind of set us up. It's called, Once Hesitant, Texas Republicans Have United Behind Donald Trump Again, you know, There were a lot of issues lurking underneath that. And you kind of flagged that piece. Right. Let's just start. What what, what did you find interesting about the piece?
1: Well, I think, you know, there was, you know, I think there was some initial reluctance um, among those Republicans. Reluctance may be the wrong word. A lot of those guys were waiting to see if Trump still had it, you know, or if there was another way here. And they were, you know, whether they were doing it vocally or not, they were watching DeSantis, they were watching Haley for all i know they were watching christie to see if anybody would break out if trump still had the hold on the party and you know after iowa and particularly after new hampshire it's clear that he does have the hold and the and the best latest evidence was the vote on the the vote not to accept the immigration compromise. The Texas delegation was 100% united behind Trump's position that they should shoot the down The Republican delegation, yes. Right, yeah, right, sorry, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah,
0: but um, an a, 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 a easy, enough, easy enough mistake to make.
1: <laughs> even the reluctant ones, you know, are the ones who had held back, you know, John Cornyn notably, Ted Cruz notably, um, had jumped in on that. So, you know, I think... Um, Trump's control of the party, at least in Texas, is solid.
0: I mean, you know, it's interesting because I think, um, like, when you and I were talking about this, you know, part of uh, a bit of Patrick's piece was about the DeSantis, you know, the the rise and fall of the, the DeSantis bubble, shall we say. Right. You know, and I mean, in terms of our public opinion polling, I was kind of, I was initially a little like, well... You know, I'm not sure DeSantis ever had the leverage among Republican voters in Texas. In Texas, yeah. that you know, but ultimately, I think you know, other than Florida, a lot of places, but certainly in Texas, you know, I, you know, Josh Blank kind of put this reasonably well at some point, kind of saying, you know, people liked, you know, voters liked him just fine, right? But they just weren't, you know, they weren't going to to choose him over Trump, which was, you know, I mean, and there's an argument there, but I mean, I think what was interesting about Patrick's piece was that it points to the disjuncture that we've, I think, I think has been evident from the beginning of Trump's rise between the response of the Republican base and the response of Republican elites in Texas.
1: Right. I mean, it's the discomfort with this guy you know, I don't necessarily want to be in a room with this guy, but this is the guy. So we're going to go with the guy. Right. You know, and they finally have come back around to, okay, we're with the guy. But, you know, I think there were a lot of them, you know, privately or, you know, semi-publicly saying, I'm, you know, I'm willing to look around. I'm willing to consider, um, you know, or I'm willing to see what the voters say this time. That was one of the hiding places. There were a bunch of places for someone who didn't want to go full-throated early for Trump to sort of park their car and wait and see what happened, and what happened was, you know, Trump is um, in the same place with the political, you know, the really political Republicans in the country that he was in in twenty, and that he that he got into in twenty sixteen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know what's interesting to me, and you talked, you know, during you know during your you know when you had to do this on a day-to-day basis and I know you're still talking to people you know there was an interesting dynamic among republicans in that you know there was a kind of there was and I think it's still evident there's a bit of a disjuncture between even even among Trump vocal Trump supporters between their public embrace and their private doubts i mean i was struck i mean i you know would violate a confidence but I you know I had a republican elected official approach me at a social thing maybe you know 18 months ago or so maybe mm-hmm. even 2 years ago mm-hmm. so you know post presidency but w- well into the post presidency you know somebody that I you know could point to a zillion examples of being not just supportive but you know publicly you know enthusiastic right. about donald trump you know in a very straightforwardly going like is it are his numbers moving at all and and the real implication was kind of and i I said you know no not really you know he still got the base locked up and the person was kind of like you know
1: gotta live with it you know it's like (laughs) it's like family it's like you know yeah we have that family (laughs) member but that's my brother so you know we're we're in it together you
0: know and so and, and i was thinking about that a lot in terms of you know the the notion of you know Trump hesitancy right. <laughs> among elites, <laughs> you know, you know to, to to use the to rob the phrase from the headline, you know, and and you know how we really think about that. I mean, and so as you think about watching Trump's rise and seeing where we are right now, and this notion of people, and I want I want to come back to Cornyn on this, but you know the kind of convergence whether mm-hmm. it's you know, per Patrick's article. You, know, Sid Miller saying, "See, I told you so."
1: Yeah, and, Sid Miller was in early and strong and, and right. never wavered. And I right. can't remember
0: who it was. So he quoted, I think it was a, a member of Congress, sort of saying, "Hey, I was here early, and you know, if you're coming in late, well, all right. with you. You know, who right. do you think you are? Right. You know, this is not going to be good enough, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. It's like but, claiming
1: firsties when you're eight years old. Right? right exactly. Again. Yeah, right. yeah. It, it, but.
0: You know, I'm wondering how you map this, giving these dynamics onto, you know, the pre-existing or the kind of operative political divisions that have been so important among Republicans. Yeah, You know I, what I mean? I mean, you know, I mean, I think out there in the world, you know, I mean, and certainly the Democrats and the president are, you know, trying to make this, you know, to much simpler than it almost certainly is. Mm-hmm. So I say, Well, you know, it's all these MAGA Republicans and you're kind of a MAGA Republican or a non-MAGA Republican. But, you know, this has been going on for a while. And I'm just wondering how you think about
1: that. Well, this is, you know, this is highly subjective and I'm completely sure. open to argument and objection. But the but I think, you know, one of the fundamental things here is that there is a difference between the voting base behind Donald Trump and the donor base in the Republican Party, and I and I think you know Trump has really nailed the grievances and concerns, uh, and anxieties of an, a blue-collar Republican voters, uh, a lot of rural voters, a lot of you know the whole thing we've talked about for years as the as the Trump voting base. And I think they're with him, you know, not because they're stupid or anything like that, but because he's actually speaking to them and he's talking to their concerns and he's addressing them. And he seems to be the only guy doing that. And the rest of this world is full of elites who are just, you know, a pain in the neck. And we're not going to listen to those guys anymore. The donor base has more of the elites in it and more of the sort of, you know, the, you know, quote unquote, traditional Republicans, country club Republicans, business Republicans, whatever you want to call them. And I think, you know, to some extent, one of the things that you see in this, you know, back and forth going on in the elected class is that they are responsive to their voters and also their donors. And so they have this hesitancy sort of built into, well, I was at a fundraiser the other night and I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, Trump's kind of troublesome and I don't like his personality. And, you know, I think we ought to give Nikki Haley a look, or I think we ought to give, you know, DeSantis a look or, or whoever, and, at the same, and then the next day, they go to a rally. And they, you know, whoa, that's a full-throated roar. They're still there. They're still in their trucks. They've still got their signs up. The Trump thing is real. And, you know, the party has to come back in election years particularly to the voting base. The donor base, if you watch it nationally through the Iowa and New Hampshire and, and to some extent now on the Republican side, has been— um, experimenting with a lot of other candidates and, yeah. and putting significant amounts of money into other candidates to see if there's anything besides Trump. And there clearly is, you know, just based on those numbers, there clearly is in the donor base. I don't see it, you know, I mean, you don't see it in your polling numbers. I mean, you know, that MAGA base, that hardcore, we are for Trump, damn it, voter is, is still hardcore, we're for Trump.
0: Right. And and, and I think you you kind of bolt onto that. I mean, there's the, I mean, there's a lot of talk out there. As everybody's read about, you know, Trump's floor and, you know, Trump's floor and Trump's ceiling. Right. And, and, you know, part of the problem, and I was talking to a Republican candidate about this recently is that, you know, whatever that floor vote is, mm-hmm. you know, it's significant enough to have shut out. Other people. Yeah,
1: my floor is higher than your floor, right? And
0: <laughs> you know, there's enough. You know, and you and I talked about this. You know, 15 years ago with the Tea Party, right? right. You know, there's, you know, you were saying there's the hardcore of people that will not move off of Trump, no matter what. I don't think at this right. point. And then there's a degree of passive support. You know, but what that means is if you know, as you said, if you look at our polling data, that's that combination kept Trump at, you know. 80% or more job approval among Republicans in Texas throughout his presidency. Mm-hmm. It's dropped a little in terms of now his post-presidency favorable, favorability ratings, right. but it's still in the 70s. Right. Right. And so you're just not, there's not much to do with that.
1: You've got that thing, and, you know, this, this may be offensive to a pollster, but, you know, you've sort of got the Trump base, and it's a positive vote for Trump. And then you've got this second group that is a negative vote for anybody from the Democratic Party, right. especially Biden, right? And you combine the sort of the, yes, I'm for Trump, and no, I'm not for Biden, and you're you're up in your high numbers right. again.
0: Yeah, the combination of like, you know, real, you know, and I think, you know, it's not too offensive. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's the baseline, but then there's also this kind of, uh, you know, where all the other larger forces at play in the political system are there, and it's you know, basically, you know, the forces of negative partisanship and things right. like this. So, you know, I, I want to come back to an element of this, but I mean, you know, you mentioned Cornyn and Cornyn is, you know, is an interesting exhibit for making the argument that, you know, this is the, you know, the replaying of what some people would just, you know, see as one of the fundamental cleavages among Texas Republicans, which is, you you know, essentially there's a kind of pre Tea Party Republican and a post Tea Party Republican. Right. And that's not that everybody elected after twenty ten to the legislature or Congress is automatically, you know, a far right, whatever you want to call it. No, but they're but they're
1: certainly continually conscious of it. Yeah, and they're they're right. conditioned and, 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 in and a different wary way. of it and you know, yeah.
0: And as a group, they they are more likely to be in that group,
1: you know. And Cornyn—it's like having a dog that doesn't usually bite. <laughs> there they <you> go. <laughs> <laughs> but he might. <laughs> uh, that's that's
0: your first Ross Ramseyism of the of the podcast. Um, I, you know, but Cornyn is such an interesting guy in that regard, right? I mean, and in some ways, it is kind of impossible not to see Cornyn's trajectory here. Through that lens, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, Cornyn is not only a pre-Tea Party Republican. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, Cornyn wins. Is you know, is, is a judge in mid '90s, right? Right, early '90s. Early he's a trial mid-
1: court judge in San Antonio. Right. He comes up. He's on the Texas Supreme Court. You know, um, and in the and in the court in that court. Um, which was a Republican court. He was he was kind of a centrist. He was a deal maker on that court. And um, then became Texas Attorney General and went to Washington essentially with Bush as a U.S. senator and right. rose very, very quickly through the Senate, you know, in large measure because he was Bush's go-to guy. He's the go-to guy for the president. And his rise in the Senate was as fast as anybody from Texas since—or faster than anybody from Texas since LBJ. And— you know, he's in the top. I think there's three guys the that three are generally Johns. speculated about. You know, as, yeah. as successors to Mitch McConnell. Yeah. There's there's Cornyn. Right, and 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 just in his
0: affect through all this. I mean, you know, you and I, you know, when we were working on the poll together, um, you know, it was kind of the set piece. It's like, up oh, there's Cornyn's numbers again. Right. You know, astoundingly, kind of, you know. You know, if we had a dime for every time we used the term, you know, damned with faint praise about Cornyn, you know, we'd be rich. And, you know, watching that play out here, you know, and and Cornyn's kind of reluctant endorsement of him after New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, it really encourages that kind of read of who he is, that he's kind of one of the last men standing of that generation of Republican leaders. Right, right. You know, as I think about it, I mean, I, you know.
1: Yeah, it's the, you know, it's the thing, you know, this is, you know, completely speculative, but the, you know, it's the kind of thing where if the Republican Party had decided to change gears and we're not going to be MAGA anymore, we're going to go back to what we were, the old Republican Party, Cornyn would have been the tallest building on the landscape. Right. And one of the things that, you know, you sort of have to nod to his political skills is that he's not sort of overtly he's not a quote machine he's not you know necessarily on all the talk shows and anything he doesn't particularly show well in polling it doesn't it's not horrible but it's just sort of mediocre yeah but he's also done all of that you know as kind of a non trump guy that the trump guys still rely on and yeah. he's and he's still a go to and you know, he's, you know he's he's found a spot he's found a pocket
0: yeah. And, and, you know, in watching him, you know, you reference kind of the immigration thing in the U.S. Senate right. right now. I mean, and the way, you know, his again, his trajectory within that discussion, you know, fits that interpretation personally. I well, mean, perfectly. He... he was one of the people early on saying, yeah, you know, this is kind of we got to talk about this. This is kind of going well. I could see this working. And, if and then you, he voted no.
1: If you skip back a couple of administrations, he was Bush's one of Bush's leads when, you know, Bush came close to an immigration bill when he was president. And one of his leads in the Senate was John Cornyn. You know, yeah. he, he's in a border state. This is, a, you know, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, senators, national politicians from California, Arizona, New Mexico and Texas have a different take on this and a different approach to it. And frankly, more familiarity with how... Immigration actually works in an economy and and all of that kind of stuff, and Cornyn's been in the middle of those battles. You know, at the end, like you say, you know, Cornyn and McConnell encouraged this thing and did what they could to help it, and both of them voted against it, right? But, I mean, because it's another... they've got the thing that they want, you know, and then they've got the reality that they're against, and they vote, eventually went with reality.
0: You know, as, as as a as a way of transitioning here, but I, you know, it's it's striking to think about. You know, to, to look at, you know, a couple of things, to look at this set of events in the Senate from and in Congress from the last few weeks or a few months that kind of culminated this week with the failure of the the bill in the Senate, and to look at what's going on with Greg Abbott on the border and the and the politics of Abbott's approach to border security, and to look back, I mean, as I was thinking about some of this, I was going back and looking at a piece that You know, I did for the Tribune that you edited, you know, back in 2011, right, talking about the way that Rick Perry was balancing elite preferences on the border and where the base was clearly headed. And, you know, we've been talking about the Tea Party interlude 2011, you know, the, you know, the issue of sanctuary cities was kind of the focal point in that narrow 2010-2011 sequence Um, You know, and and how different that looks now, right? I mean, does that make sense to you? I mean, I'm not articulating that very clearly, but I mean, one of the things we talked about a lot at the time in the, you know, really in the run-up to the Tea Party surge was Perry's ability and his team to deploy this kind of rhetorical tool that separated immigration and border security.
1: Well, he did, you know, at that time, you know, one of the, if you said too much from the conservative side about immigration, you were into accusations of racism and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Well, and and pragmatically
0: that the the problem of not being attentive to demographics. Right, right. right.
1: And, and, you know, a lot of the conversation at that time was, you know, this is going to be a majority Hispanic state in just a minute, um, you know, and right. it was already, you know, approaching at that time, I think was approaching plurality. Um, and Perry figured out that, you know, well, I'm not going to talk about immigration anymore. I'm going to talk about border security and I'm going to talk about safety and I'm going to talk about all of that. And it gave him a way to talk about it. That was not only not only skirted all of the problems, you know, associated with conversations about immigration, but also got him some Democratic ears. Yeah. You know, and 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 was more of a, hold on, I want to hear this kind of a thing for voters who had shut him out when he was talking about, shut Republicans out when they were talking about immigration. It was, you know, it was was nuanced and it was really interesting and it was working for him until he became a national candidate and took that show on the road to Iowa. And, you know, it didn't sell up there. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same thing. You know, up there, the language was, already more like what we hear now. This is an invasion. This is, you know, all right. of those kinds of things. And the appeals from people like Rick Perry and John McCain at that time that, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are our friends. These are part of our economy. That just didn't sell in Republican circles. And, and and you know, it was the beginning of what we see today.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we think back about, you know you know, the rise and fall of Rick Perry as a presidential candidate, People, of course, remember the three things and oops and all that. Right. But really, the under you know the real you know the real underlying trigger when his rise hit a, hit a hit a point and then he started to drop was actually when he was asked about about dreamers and and his response was you know you can kind of have a heart a little right. bit and it was like okay you're he's done
1: right. Right. Who's this right. guy? I mean, he, right.
0: you know, the other thing helped finish him off. But, but what was
1: interesting, you know, and you know, being in newsrooms in Texas at the time, you know, the your ears are trained differently, right? If you're a reporter from, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post, and you're not in a and, and you're not in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico or California, you know, we heard that and went, yeah, that's you know, that's the line Perry's been on. You know, that yeah. that sounds pretty normal down here, and everybody else was like, whoa, what is that? Right. uh, Well, and
0: he got, you know, as I recall, and he got, you know, was it a live debate? He got booed. Right. Um, You know, the other thing that's interesting about that trajectory in terms of like coming back and thinking about where we are now and how it's changed, what the arc of that is, you know, is is also that, you know, at the at the state level in that debate over, you know, the early waves of attempts of show me your paper bill laws and and in particular sanctuary cities thing. You know, the pushback in the legislature that really helped—the pushback that really helped halt that stuff in the legislature. You know, the two key par- you know—people there that really weighed in in an unusually public way were construction industry Bob Perry and Perry Homes, right out of Houston, and right. and Charles Butt.
1: Right. Charles Butt was HEB. And basically, you know, one's looking at his customer base, one's looking at his employee base. And, you know, we got to build houses out here. We got to, you know, look, this is an important part of the economy. At the same time, in other parts of the country, they were having these moments of disquiet. My brother lived in Georgia at the time and sent me an article um, or a set of articles, actually, about the agriculture business in Georgia. And they were actually having produce die on the vine because we had tightened immigration so much that they didn't have any agricultural workers. And they were like, oh, wait, this is, you know, Bo Pilgrim, who was a yeah. chicken magnate. I love that term uh, from Northeast Texas, you know, was campaigning against this with Bob Perry. It was a very interesting right, sort of dynamic at the time. Uh, but that's no longer the conversation.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, I... You know, I'm trying to think as we're having this conversation and we sound like a couple of old guys talking about this, but so it, so it goes. But, right. you know, you have a sense as you think back on that about when we really noticed that the kind of dynamic we're talking about, the political space that Rick Perry attempted to occupy in that, like when that ended?
1: Well, I think part of it was the, you know— you know, Perry's experience, you know, everybody was watching that. I mean, everybody in politics watches everybody else in politics. You know, that's a new trick. Ooh, don't do that. Yikes. Um, And Perry's was one of those, ooh, don't do that things. The show your papers laws, you know, that was um, the subject of, or, you know, one of the subjects of an Arizona case that went into the federal courts and the federal courts said, you can't use local or state officials to enforce federal immigration law. That's the Fed's thing. And that was, you know, that sort of stood as the, you know, the fence line for years and years. Operation Lone Star, that Greg Abbott has employed now for several years and spent a ton of money on, is a straight up middle finger to that ruling. And, you know, come challenge us. Um, here we are. We're going to enforce these laws. We're going to do what we're going to do. You know, they're in direct opposition to the federal government. And so, one of the things that happened when you had that federal ruling and everybody sort of honoring it, it was kind of kept everybody at a distance. The other thing was, you know, Abbott and all the others are responding to a change. And there's a change in migration patterns. There's a huge change in the load of people trying to get to come across the border. There's been, um, you know, there's been a lot of flux in these policies. We went through Remain in Mexico, we went through Section 42, right. we went through all of these other things. Where you know the federal government was trying to throttle this or get some kind of handle on it, they obviously haven't done that. This attempt, you know, this uh, bipartisan attempt that failed in Congress this week was another attempt to go at that kind of stuff. Um, right now, you know, this is you know this is becoming a more common phrase. But right now, the problem is more useful politically than the solution is. And you know, in an election year in 2024. The Republican Party, you know, pretty much decided, you know, wasn't like it was a side issue. They actually talked about it. If we pass this bill, it's going to take heat off of the Biden administration and take an issue away from Trump. Let's don't do it. Right. So we're not doing it.
0: Well, and I guess, you know, in terms of thinking about that transition, it seems to me that, you know, the the thesis that national is a Republican candidate or, as an, you know, as a Republican-elected official, you could drive that issue harder in response to, you know, these more restrictive, you know, in some cases, even nativist impulses among the Republican ba- voting base, you know, is a convergence of a couple of different things. I mean, I think, you know, Greg Abbott is already moving in that direction prior to Trump's rise. I mean, in terms of trying to figure out when this is... When this really takes hold, right? right? You know, Abbott is elected in 2014. Trump rises the following year. And they're both tapping into very similar things. right? Trump, you know, moves the boundaries, you know, the rhetorical and policy and uh, cultural boundaries further out, for lack of a better term, to to the right. Mm -hmm. You know, and sort of, you know, to my mind, he kind of you know, he confirms impulses that we were already, you know, that, poli- you know, you were talking about politicians watching other politicians. Right. He kind of demonstrates to people that are already experimenting with that kind of rhetoric in the wake of the Tea Party and kind of says, you know, whether he's doing it on purpose, I mean, he's doing it on purpose, but he communicates to other political leaders, including in Texas at the state level, oh, look, you can take this a lot farther.
1: Well, he also is in an environment, you know, one of the things we've talked about for years is the prevalence of immigration and border security as a top issue among Republican voters in Texas. And I think since we started, you know, you know, since we started really paying attention to it, I mean, it's been there. It's been a very, very persistent. It's clearly one of the base issues. Trump was in a primary or was entering a primary with a bunch of Republicans who had already taken pretty strong positions based on that perception. You know, this is a big deal with Republican voters. I need to be, yeah. you know, strong on immigration and border security, you know, whether I'm Rick Perry or anybody else in that giant primary that year. And Trump, you know, I mean, in one sense, he did a good job of product differentiation. He came down the escalator and talked about rapists and murderers. Yeah. And put it in a crime context and you know, raised the stakes considerably. Some of them weren't willing to go that far. Some of them obviously were. Voters obviously responded well to it. And, you know, it's become a key part of his political brand.
0: You know, and as I think about, you know, I, I, the other piece of that we were talking about before we started recording was also, I think, you know, a a revisiting and, and some of this, you know, was changed, but certainly in Texas, a revisiting of, assumptions about the growing Latino vote and where they were going to come down on these kinds of issues. Right. Right? I mean, we talked about, you know, the the initial strat political strategy in the 2000s, you know, that we were talking about in connection with Perry. And, you know, obviously also reflected Bush that, you know, you had to have some kind of regard for the fact that there was going to be a larger Latino voting bloc and they might not respond very well to this kind of rhetoric. But I think... You know, one of the things that was problematic about the Teixeira et al. Uh, uh, hypothesis and that changed in the realization of this point that changed the political calculations was that this rhetoric was not uniformly alienating among all Latino voters. Right. If you, you know, I mean, there were some things that were very alienating, right? But particularly in Texas, it was a kind of miscalculation about what was going on with Latino voters, and and it, it I, I think what it did is it really made people confront something that became one of the horiest of that's H O A R one of the horiest of cliches when you talked about Latinos. Like, well, you know, Latinos are not a monolith, right? But you know, the point of that was often like at a national level, you have to differentiate between, you know, country of origin or, you know, ethnicity, you know, that Cuban Americans, different Puerto Ricans, different than Mexican Americans. Well and there's et cetera, also et cetera. There's
1: also, you know, there was a there was a there was and to some extent still is, but there was a very prevalent argument that demographic change equaled political change right. that because Hispanics tend to vote for Democrats then this growth in the Hispanic population will mean growth in the democratic thing and 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 the the you know the failure of that was you're assuming that they're voting democratic because they're Hispanic and you know the new ones might not vote that way you right. know kids might not vote like their parents did well and and, 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 and the republicans you know led really by George W Bush in his first race against Ann Richards, and in his second race, uh, where he didn't really have you know strong opposition from Gary Morrow, was we're gonna we're gonna assume these are up for grabs, and we're gonna go for a big vo- border right. vote. They went to my hometown of El Paso like three or four times and really changed the numbers there. And it was like a demonstration case or a little petri dish over there. It's like look at this little political experiment. This is not a monolithic vote, as you said. Right. And it's in play, and then through the Trump years, it turned out to be in play on economic opportunity and and on you know border issues that were not about you know race, but were about nationality.
0: Right. I, you know, we're going to get a bunch of irate emails about how you can overplay this or whatever. Or I, I think will... you
1: can overplay all of this, but I think the I think the mistake I'm trying to point out is that. The Democrats and the Republicans made some big assumptions on demographic changes that didn't pan out.
0: Well, yeah, and where I was going to go with the point about, you know, not being a monolith is that that applied to Texas Latinos who I think were often kind of not a big part. I mean, Texas was an exhibit in that discussion in contrast to Florida and New York and California. Right, right. But the point that got missed in that, I think that speaks to your point about what we saw kind of post Bush and we're seeing with Abbott now is that the heterogeneity here or the you know the not monolithic you know argument didn't apply just on sort of basis of ethnicity but on things like geography right you know urban rural differences and I think that explains a lot of what we've seen in the Trump thing in the last couple of elections and all the you know, sort of hoo-ha about that, if you will, but, and well, I, generation, right? Yeah, you
1: know, I mean, we used to have, you know, for a long time, if you look at maps, Texas had a blue border. You know, the border counties, everything south of I-10 and west of I-35 tended to be Democratic strongholds, you know, right. the, the whole South Texas block. And, you know, that's um, that's in play now.
0: It's eroding, yeah. And, right. I, and, and I think that, you yeah, know, and that has a lot more to do, I think, with, you know, economic factors, You're Saying you know, demographics of those areas which are are more predominantly rural and you know have particular economic orientations and it's not you know and and you know it's it's actually not had it's not it's not if you look at the numbers at the top of the ballot we're not talking about a whole a lot of movement if you go back and you figure you know look you know greg abbott's gotten 40 percent of the latino vote right you know a couple of times, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of times north of, you know, at least once north of that. right? Um, and that, you know, that that seems to get lost in this discussion a lot, I think, that, mm-hmm. you know, on one hand, yeah, we're seeing some movement, but I mean, you know, you're still seeing, you know, the areas, you know, this is a big point, you know, Josh not being here today is a big point. Josh really likes to make a lot that I think is exactly correct that, yeah, you're seeing some movement in those areas, but if you look at the urban areas where the votes are, right, you know, you're not seeing nearly as much movement among Latinos as you are in some of these other non-urban areas, right? Right. And in that sense, Latinos look like, you know, a lot of other voters, right? Which is a, you know, gets you into a lot of I think from you know sitting here on campus, you know, there was a lot of I think it, I think there's a lot of resistance to that within the kind of academic Latino community, right. You know, we, uh, the Latino academic community and the people that look at Latino studies because, you know, it was kind of an uncomfortable point to make. Right. Right. <laughs> right? So. So before we run out of time, I want to, you know, at least, you know, uh, we were talking with uh, uh, some of our staff here in the studio about the primary going on.
1: Oh, yeah. The primary.
0: So as you look at the at the primary in Texas right now, having seen a lot of these primaries, you know, what do you, what are you noticing?
1: There's, there's two things. You know, one of them is a continuing trend. has been going for a long time. Redistricting has reduced the number of competitive districts to a handful. You know, 30 years ago, there you know, 50 or 60 seats in the Texas House, which has 150 seats, on any day could go Democratic or Republican, depending on the issues and what was going on nationally. And now, you know, that's a dozen, maybe. And so the importance of the primaries to the final result has risen, you know, this is a primary in the Republican Party for a seat. No Democrat can win. So this is a March race, and it almost doesn't matter right. who you throw at him in November. Um, so, you know, the other thing is sort of the the law of small numbers. You know, if you can win, you know, the turnout in primaries is lower, about 2 million, $2 million people in the Democratic primary, about 2 million people in the Republican primary, a million votes can win a primary in a state a statewide primary yeah. in a state with thirty million people in it. you know, so if I can get organized and really get my partisans rolling, particularly in something some subset of that, like a house district, I can take this thing. right. So people have figured that out and figured out that you know if you spend your money wisely, it doesn't cost nearly as much to run over somebody in a primary as it does in a general election. So there's a lot of money involved. And there are, you know, a couple of overriding things. I think, you know, Texas politics right now is almost entirely described by national issues. Um, there are a couple of local issues that are a big concern in the Texas Capitol and in kind of the 16 blocks around it that I'm waiting to see, frankly, if, if they really play. Does anybody out in, out in the rest of Texas really are any of those people really going to base their vote on how you voted on Ken Paxton's impeachment, whether, you know, you were voting to impeach or you were voting to convict on that impeachment? Um, Maybe, and it might work in this ad or that ad. Um, That's what Paxton is playing. Are people really talking a lot about vouchers, school vouchers? Um, So Paxton is campaigning for and against people based on how they voted on him. Greg Abbott is voting, is actually campaigning, um, for and against people on the basis of how they voted on vouchers, and and you know he's had a couple of special sessions. He's gotten dunked every time. Vouchers has been around Texas around the Texas legislature for 25 or 30 years, and rural Republicans don't like it. It doesn't divide nicely on Democratic and Republican lines, but on lines of you know rural, urban, um, and suburban, and. They haven't been able to get it through. So, you know, we'll see how those issues play. I still think, you know, most voters are going to go in the booth thinking about immigration or thinking, you know, among Democrats and maybe thinking about abortion or thinking about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Um, And I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I don't expect a ton of change in the numbers in the legislature. Senate's going to be about the same number of Republicans and Democrats. House is going to be about the same number of Republicans and Democrats. They'll hang some pelts on the wall. There'll be some people that are on the hit list that don't die, and they'll come back cheering, and there'll be some people that the governors and the attorney general's assassins can claim, you know. Yeah. But I don't really expect a big numerical change or a big change in direction.
0: You know, looking at looking more, more specifically at the Republican primary, I mean, you were talking about kind of, you know, laws of numbers. You know, there are more challengers. Right. And in, in, in more races this time. You know, and I, I guess as you talk about, you know, our voters paying attention to Paxton or vouchers, but part of the dynamic right now, I think, is, you know, on one hand, there are some people that are fighting the fight around vouchers. I mean, there was a an ad in Travis against incumbent Travis Clardy that was right. circulating. I saw it in the last couple of days.
1: Right. East Texas Republican voted against vouchers.
0: Right. The, well, yeah, right. And the, the, and but the you know, I was interested in the rhetorical play of the ad. Right. Which was. Not he voted against vouchers. It was kind of what we anticipated a little bit, given where politics were about 18 months ago. Right. Which was the vote against vouchers was a vote against being able to move your kids away from subversive DEI woke public education.
1: Right, right.
0: And, I, you know, and so I'm wondering as I think about what's going on in the primary and, you know, we're getting all these signals. I've not, I've not seen any district by district polling. I've seen some, I've had people talk about it, but I haven't seen any of it. Right. You know, there's a lot of nervousness about there because I think there's a lot of bank shots, right, in the right. sense of, you know, yeah, you know, people may not, you know, base their vote on the Paxton vote or the voucher vote, but the resources pouring in, particularly on the voucher side. I mean, right. you know, you know, there's the. I, there's the guy I, I don't who think it's two, too insulting to say that you know Rick or Governor Abbott got a six million dollar contribution from one donor, Jeff Yaz, who's right. a focused a New on Jersey
1: venture capitalist right. or or you know, the, guy. it
0: seems to be pass through money.
1: Right. Well, he's a big, you know, the Jeff Yass, this guy is a big um, advocate for vouchers and has spent a lot of money in states around the country. He's, you know, I can't. And and I guess the
0: point I'm trying to make is that, you, you know, just because you got that $6 million targeted on vouchers doesn't mean that the ads you buy or the arguments you make or the candidates you promote are obligated to talk about vouchers. They might. Right. Vouches. They can go talk about whatever. Right. Right. Once they get the money. And I wonder about that.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the way you get around that is, you know, you spend your money on their behalf so that you can control the ad, you know. Yeah. And it's going to be, you know, interesting to see what they do. If, if you know, Abbott needs a certain number of votes to get this issue through. And he's targeting the people who voted against him. I mean, it's, you know, pretty straight up, you know. Right. Textbook politics. Um the question is, you know, can he overcome the reluctance in some of these rural communities, like Travis Clardy's, against vouchers? You know, they don't have a bunch of private schools that they can send kids off to. Right. The schools in those in in small towns are often, you know, civic centers, and and you know, everybody's at the football game, and yeah. we have our big meetings at the gym, and you know, there's a there's a cultural aspect to this that doesn't exist necessarily. In cities and suburbs and and also a lack of choice because the schools are not you know nobody's starting a school like this in Deleon, texas they're starting them in fort worth and dallas right, right?
0: where the markets where the market is right. and the flip side of that obviously and this you know people are going to be familiar with this those schools tend to be smaller and so the potential loss of enrollment and the money that comes with student enrollment right you know much more impactful and that was part of you know that was baked into the deals like how long are you going to make us whole and how Right at what rate, and you know, very you know, specific kind of policy things. So
1: it'll it'll be interesting based on the based on the results of the Republican primary, you might be able to say you know, well, it looks like you know he's going to get his bill now, or he's not going to get his bill now. Um, so you know that's yeah. that's kind of an interesting thing to watch. But you know, other than that one issue, I don't know. I don't really see a change in numbers here that affects the the, the output, overall really. balance. Yeah, the overall balance.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I appreciate that because it's not as myopic as, you know, it's one of the reasons I was was interested in talking to you about this. And, and, you know, we've talked about this in a lot of the primaries that we've seen as we've been working together. When you're right in front of that thing, it's very easy to go, oh, God, this thing. Right. It's shocking. This is going to be, you know. Right. And then you overestimate the degree of change. right? Right. And, right. and, and just how much of an earthquake, quote unquote? Yeah, it's usually it
1: not an earthquake. You right. know, if it's an earthquake, everybody'll know it.
0: Tremors, and if and if the yeah, if the, if, if the plates shift, it's a, you know, it's a three point three. It's not a seven. Right, <laughs> right, right. So with that, um, Ross, thanks for being here. This is fun. Always Hopefully, we'll do this yeah. again more often. Uh, thanks again to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. If you're listening to this on uh, a podcast platform. If you go to texaspolitics.utexas.edu, um, we'll also post the podcast with some supplemental material, some of the data we've talked about. We'll throw a link on there to Patrick's feetex piece in the Tribune that we talked about earlier in the podcast. So thanks all of you uh, for listening, and we'll be back soon with another second reading podcast. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.